We are uh, going through a series on the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. And when I initially decided to do this series, I was going to omit this particular teaching because it doesn't deal directly with the life and ministry of Jesus. It deals with John. But I decided the last couple of weeks that I would take, if you will, a commercial timeout. Now, in a sense of a commercial timeout, I'm not trying to sell you anything, so you can your wallet's safe. It's more like a public service announcement. You know how if you watch television, it's always telling you not to drink and drive because the consequences are serious. Or if on the radio, you hear you're not supposed to text and drive because the consequences are the same. It's a public service announcement. They're not trying to sell you anything. They just want you to conform to safety standards. And so I guess it's better to call this, instead of a commercial, a disciple service sermon. Because what we're going to talk about, every disciple will experience at least once and probably multiple times in his or her life of following Jesus and ministering therefore. So we're going to take a look at this instance in John the baptizer's life. But the context is, in verse 17 of Luke chapter 7, it says that uh, this report concerning him, that being Jesus, went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding districts. So Jesus was healing and raising the dead and doing all sorts of miracles. And, the, and especially the resurrection of the dead just went out everywhere. Now John, who was the one who baptized Jesus, who was the one who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The one who was baptizing one so that people could uh, acknowledge the forgiveness of their sins, but also he was looking for the Messiah. And when he baptized Jesus and the Spirit of God descended, he knew it was him. But in this instance, John is sitting in jail. And that's kind of a nice prison dungeon is much more. See, when we think of it, we think of big screen TVs and places to go out and play basketball in the court or whatever. No, no. He was in a dark, damp, dingy, dungeon because he preached about the kingdom of God, but he also preached against the Tetrarch, who was Herod, Herod the great son. And the reason he preached against Herod the Tetrarch, because Herod divorced his wife and married his brother's wife. Now, even in most other cultures, that would be reprehensible, but especially in the life of Jews because there's several violations of the law right in and of itself. And so he condemned Herod the Tetrarch. And so instead of repenting, Herod had him arrested. And so knowing that, we see the disciples of John reported to him about all of these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, 
or do we look for someone else? Again, here's the one whose ministry was to make straight the path of the Messiah. The one who had declared that Jesus is the one who will take away the sins of the world. And yet, all of a sudden, we see that there's doubt because his circumstance isn't working out the way he supposed. I'm sure he probably thought that the Messiah, as many other people thought, was going to come, set up his kingdom, kick out the Romans, get rid of all the unrighteousness, and set up a righteous kingdom. And at this point, Jesus isn't doing that. So he's going, God's not doing what I expect him to do. Since he's not doing what I expect him to do, is he the one? That's why I say in this situation, it is just like all of us disciples. Think back when you first made a commitment to Jesus. And you said the sinner's prayer, or however it was that you came to him. There was a sense of release of guilt and the sense of understanding your forgiveness and the love of God. And you felt excellent and you wanted to tell everybody. And there was that sense of of an emotional high, if you will. And if there was some distance between your baptism and your profession of faith, when you were baptized, again, there was that sense of, I've done what the Lord wants in your your gung-ho. And then maybe you've had the opportunity to go on a religious retreat. And usually in Southern California, we go to the mountains. So it's not unexpected. We say that there's this mountain high with God. And we're just so filled with the Spirit and we're so excited about what's going on, hoping that that will never diminish. And we come home and it diminishes. And then sometimes in our lives, things happen, circumstances happen. And we're going, well, why would, why would that happen to me? I'm trying to be a, a good disciple. I'm trying to follow Jesus. Why are these terrible things happening? Or why are these bad things happening to people around me? And we, and we get our eyes off of those things and, and misinterpret what God's doing. Or sometimes there's no circumstances at all. There is that what many theologians will call the, the desert time. When we're first believers, we're excited, and we read the Scriptures, and everything we read is just a new and exciting uh, venture, and we're just excited about it. And when we pray, we feel that we're connecting with God. Then there comes the time when the feelings go away. We pray, but it seems like our prayers don't get any higher than the ceiling. God didn't change. Our feelings change. And all of a sudden, we don't have those same feelings. And I'm here to say that probably the reason that you don't have the same feelings is not that you're not more or less committed, but God is trying to get you off the feelings and committed to Him. There are a whole lot of churches who continue on the path of feelings. So all the music has to relate to feelings. The messages have to relate to feelings. The ministries have to relate to feelings because that's how people feel. And God's saying, I don't want you to trust feelings. I want you to trust me. 
And so when the Word of God says that we are to pray about everything, our feelings shouldn't say, well, my feelings are that they reach to the ceiling. No, the Word of God says to come before the throne of grace with boldness, even if I don't feel that way. And here's John, who's done some awesome things. And he's based on feeling. So he goes to these people to Jesus. Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? And at that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have heard the gospel preached to them. Jesus says, I'm not going to answer yes or no to the question. See what I have done. And what I have done is consistent with the prophecies concerning the Messiah. Then he says something of a little bit of a rebuke. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Jesus is saying, stop thinking about what it is you think I'm supposed to do. Just because you think God is supposed to be in this box doesn't mean God is in that box. Let God be God. You, your theology is that I'm going to rule this world. And Jesus will, but not at this time. That's the second coming. The first just as John had said, he was the Lamb who took away the sins of the world. And all too often, we try to tell God how he ought to be God. Even non-believers who don't believe in God try to have God be their God. Because I, I don't know how many times I've heard, my God would never do that. Yeah, because you probably created your God. My God might not forgive all that I do, but God does. God, my God, may expect a whole lot from me. God walks with me every day. I want to talk now a little about another prophet. One who John came in the spirit of, and that's Elijah. Because I want you to see that when we experience these feelings or lack of feelings, or confusion about what God's doing or not doing, or why are we in these circumstances or not, an excellent example is Elijah. So I'm going to give you a real quick running view of Elijah's life. Elijah bursts on the scene and he says, 
because, in essence, because of Israel's sin, that it would not rain until he spoke that it would rain. Then he took off and went to a brook and had water, and God had the ravens come and feed him twice a day with bread and meat. So God was supplying all of his needs. And like God does for us. Then when the rain had not come for a long period of time, the brook dried up. So God sent him to a widow. But not just any widow. Not even a widow in Israel. He sent, her to, sent him to a Gentile. And he saw this widow woman who had one son. And she was going to get some sticks to make a fire to take the last oil and the last flour that she had, make a meal, and then that would be their last supper, and they would die. And Elijah asked something very selfish of her. He said, make some for me first. But if you do that, the oil and the flour will not run out. And she does so. And the flour and the oil does not run out the entire time that Elijah is with her. Now, the interesting thing about this widow is she was going to make their last meal. But during the time that Elijah was with her, her son died. And she gets upset and thinks that evil has been brought to her because her son died. I always think it's interesting because without Elijah, her son would have been dead a lot longer ago. And Elijah does something interesting. He carries the, the boy's body upstairs to his room. And he lays on him and he prays, not just once, he prays and he prays, and the boy is resurrected. Now, I don't know about you, but if I experienced that, I'd be all right. God allowed me to participate in the resurrection of this young man. God supplied all of Elijah's needs. God is continuing to supply all of Elijah's needs with oil and flour. And then he raises a young man from the dead. Then God sends him, as he's been hiding out from the king, whose name is Ahab. And he goes to one of the lesser prophets and he says, go tell the king to meet me. And in his associate goes, wait a minute, we've been looking for you. And I'm afraid that if I go tell the king, God's going to send you out and, and he's going to kill me because we've been looking for you. And at the same time, he says to Elijah that he's hidden a hundred different prophets in two different caves, 50 each, and is providing food for them. Elijah says, I want you to tell Elijah, and I want you to send 450 of the priests of Baal and also bring along 400 of those who are involved with Asherah. And he goes to the king, and they meet, they meet at Mark, Mark, Mount Carmel, or as we would say in Southern California, Mount Carmel. And Elijah says, I'll tell you what, if, if God is God, follow him. If, if Baal is God, follow him. But why do you keep going back and forth? And the people like people today don't make a commitment. They don't say a word. So Elijah goes, I'll tell you what, let's take two ox. You take one, cut it up, put it on an altar, 
You pray to your God. If fire comes down and consumes it, we'll know that Baal's God. And I'll do the same. And if God brings down fire, we'll know that God is God. Because in essence, you go first. So they go and they present their offering. They do everything and they're praying and they're yelling. And, and Elijah's having great fun. He starts mocking and ridiculing. He goes, well, maybe your God's gone on a trip. Or maybe he's asleep. Maybe you need to yell louder. And they're yelling louder and they're cutting themselves and doing all kinds of things. And Elijah's having a great time. And then after several hours, Elijah goes, okay, it's my turn. And he builds an altar of 12 stones, each stone representing the tribe of Israel. And he takes the offering and he places it on it. And then he tells everybody to put water on the altar. They do it three times, so much so that the water overflows the damming area. And God and Elijah prays. And God sends fire down and consumes the offering and the water and everything. Then Elijah tells the people of God to kill the prophets of Baal. And they do. Then Elijah says, that wasn't a great opportunity. Tells Ahab to go eat because the rain's coming. And he gets in a very odd prayer position. He puts his head between his knees. And he prays. He doesn't pray one time. He prays seven times. And he keeps looking. And finally there's this cloud that it says it's the size of a man's hand. And he just goes, get out of here. It's going to rain hard. So Ahab jumps on his chariot and takes off. And then Elijah starts running. And even though Ahab has an advanced opportunity to take off and is in a chariot, Elijah runs past him. That that, that's a great movie. I that whole scene. I, I don't know why they haven't made a movie of that. But it goes... And he passes him. Great mountaintop experience. God has demonstrated himself in supplying the needs of Elijah and the needs of the widow and her son, raising the dead, fire coming down from heaven. You would think that Elijah would be a rock. Well, Ahab tells his wife Jezebel what happened. And Jezebel was a follower of Baal, and she was upset. And she goes, if my God don't do to me what happened to the priest, to Elijah, then may they do it to me. So she was looking to see that Elijah was dead within the next 24 hours. Now you would think Elijah, having experienced all these things that God has done for him and through him, would say, bring it. He doesn't. He takes off. And he goes, oh. Woe is me. I wish I were dead. Well, hang around. That's what she wants to do to you. But he takes off. And he, and he rests under a juniper tree. And God, instead of being mad at him, for whatever, sends an angel who prepares a meal for him. And he eats. And he rests some more. And the angel goes, your journey is a lot further. Things are going to happen. We need to feed you enough that you're going to not need it for 40 days and 40 nights. So he prepares another meal. 
And then he goes off. And Elijah ends up in a cave. And again, you would think, okay, God has provided for me through this angel. I've been on the mountaintop. I've seen God at work. I've seen him raise the dead. So even if they kill me, he can still raise me from the dead. He's in a cave complaining that he's the only one left. Even though he's been told that there are a hundred other prophets hanging there. It's poor me. I've been faithful, but nobody else has. And God says, what you doing? And he goes, come out of the cave. And all of a sudden, there's this mighty wind, so much so that it breaks rocks. But the scripture says, God's not in the wind. And then there's an earthquake. It says, God's not in the earthquake. And then there is a mighty fire. It says, God is not in the fire. And then there's a still, small voice. And God speaks to him. And Elijah complains that I'm the only one left. I've been faithful. Take me. I'm, I'm done. And God goes, I got 7,000 who have never bowed the knee to Baal. What do you mean you're the only one left? I got one more job for you. And again, most of us say, okay, look at all that you've done with and through God. You blew it. I'm going to give you somebody else. God goes, nope. I got another job for you, Elijah. I want you to go anoint the king of Israel, anoint the king of Judah, and anoint your successor. Then God does something also very interesting. For you see, Jezebel had made a vow that she might die if Elijah wasn't dead in 24 hours. But guess what God does? Elijah never dies. He takes off in a chariot of fire. James tells us that Elijah was a man just with a, with a nature just like ours. Even though he experienced God's power both in his life and, and seeing what God has done, he was still subject to, for me. I don't understand what is God doing. The good news is, even though we do those things as well, God doesn't give up using us. Notice what Jesus says in verse 24 about John. You would think Jesus would be really tough on John. Because to whom much is given, much is required. When the messenger John had left, he began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? They're going, when you went out to the desert, were you there to, to look at the fauna and the flora? No. You went to the desert for a particular reason. A man dressed in soft clothing, those who are splendidly clothed and have in, in luxury are found in royal palaces. You wouldn't go out to the desert to see those things. You would go to the palace. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, 
and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. He's the advanced messenger for the Messiah. And I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Now I want you to understand what he just said. No one born of women. So who is excluding Adam and Eve? That's the only two people Jesus just excluded. He said the only two people who are greater potentially than John is Adam and Eve. Everybody else has been born a woman. That means he's greater than Abraham. That means he's greater than Jacob. That means he's greater than Israel or Isaac. Isaac. He's greater than David. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Daniel. He's greater than Isaiah. He's greater than Jeremiah. Everyone that you can think of, because Jesus basically gave a big list who he's greater than. This is the one sitting in prison, not quite understanding what's going on at this particular moment. And Jesus still says he's greater. Yet, he who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Well, how could Jesus say that? Because being in the kingdom is far better than being outside the kingdom, no matter how great you are. It is better to be a beggar in the kingdom of God than a king ruling elsewhere. Which means, I won't give you any false pride. I don't think I'm the least in the kingdom. I'm, there's probably two or three people worse than me. So I'm not going to give you any false sense. But let's say I am the least in the kingdom. Or let's say you're convinced that you are the least in the kingdom. God just said you're greater than John. So why are we sitting worried about ourselves, worried about what God's doing, feeling sorry for ourselves, instead of doing what it is God wants us to do. We see God in action and we praise Him and we see all these things and then we wonder about the next time. Even if the only thing you've experienced in your life is the forgiveness of God, you've experienced something far greater the world has. And you ought to be rejoicing regardless of what your conditions are. Regardless of what your circumstances are. When the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. They accepted because John had preached a baptism of repentance, and the tax collectors and the sinners said, we agree. We're in agreement. Now those who have the religious degrees, notice what they say. But the Pharisees and the lawyers. Someday we'll be better. 
The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Notice that God desires everyone to come to repentance. The sinners, the tax collectors, the Pharisees, the lawyers, everyone. But those who thought they were better, rejected. Verse 31. So what then shall I compare the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another. And they say, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. They're saying, well, we want to have a game. So some children said, we want to play a game of party time. So we're going to play the flute, and your job is to dance. And the other children go, I don't want to play that game. I don't like your game. You want to play Monopoly? I'd rather play Parcheesi. I don't want to play your game. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. Okay, let's play a different game. Let's play funeral. Let's let's do a dirge, a really sad song, and 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 you didn't want to play. And I go, no, I don't want to play that game either. I don't like your game. For John, the Baptist, has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. He's saying, John didn't play the game you wanted him to play. He played what it was God called him to do and be. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You didn't like John's way of doing things. You don't like the way the Messiah is doing things. Yet, wisdom is vindicated by all of her children. The disciples who follow John, who would then follow Jesus, and the disciples of Jesus, when they are the disciples of Jesus, will vindicate exactly who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. When you have those mountaintop experiences and you see clearly what God is doing, praise Him. Enjoy it. But when you are in circumstances, when you're not sure what God is doing, or you think God is doing something completely different than you think He ought to do, instead of being discouraged, look to Him. And see what he's doing. You see the scripture says, keep your eyes on Jesus. Not on the circumstances. Not on the feelings. Not on what you're doing. But who God is. And what he is doing. And understand that you're not alone. The great prophets, including John, and Elijah 
or weak in faith at times. Thought they knew what God was doing and didn't. So you're in great company. You're not alone. It's not like God, what I'm going to do about Joe, I mean, this is, this is the first time this has ever happened. No, it's happened over and over and over in the course of those who follow God. Enjoy it when you feel it. And know that he's there when you don't. As it was once said, never trade what you know about God with what you don't know. There are times I have no understanding why God does a particular thing. But I'm not God. He is. He sees it from the beginning and from the end. I just see it in this sliver of time. Trust God, not the circumstances. And I'm not saying sitting in a prison, being innocent, is enjoyable. I suspect, and, and, and when we read the rest of the story, it gets worse. John not only stays in prison for a while, he loses his head because of a dance. His life was worth less than a dance. And yet, he, by Jesus' own statement, was greater than everyone other than Adam and Eve. So someday we may find our heads on a chopping block. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It doesn't mean that God doesn't think great of you. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have other plans for you. It simply means at this particular moment, He is going to get more glory by what happens than not. Look for the opportunity in terrible circumstances for how God might be glorified. And all God's people said,